HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and we're here, as usual, at Roberta's Pizza, the home of Heritage. And today, I have two special guests who just came in from San Francisco. They happen to be um, two of the finest chefs working today, um, certainly the most creative, uh, one of the most creative. Their restaurant is called Bar Tartine. And we're talking about their new cookbook that just came out. It's their first cookbook, and it's called Bar Tartine Techniques and Recipes. Thanks so much for joining Nick Bala and Courtney Burns. Hi. Thanks for having us. Um, so thanks for coming here to New York City. Um, I know you've been um, working pretty hard in the restaurant at San Francisco every day for how long? How long has it been running? Like the, the restaurant's been open for almost eight years. Um, <laughs> We've been there... Just about four. Almost four. Yeah. So, um, and this is a, a sort of compilation of a lot of the techniques that you've mastered and come up with over time. So, uh, this might be a kind of stupid question at first, but, you know, speaking to a lot of other cooks about techniques and recipes, and you share so much, and it's so technical and creative and interesting, like I certainly learned a lot, Um do you ever feel weird about like giving away your secrets in this cookbook? No, we don't have any secrets. Secret. Yeah, no. I think that somebody's going to steal it and run away and open a restaurant. Were the, kind of the way of old, and now I think it's all about everybody sharing. And uh, days of secrets are, are dwindling. I think. Yeah, we're really lucky to have a community of people that we we work around or work near, both in San Francisco and um, in other cities where. We're able to just talk about food and talk about what we're doing, and you know, four different people could cook the same recipe, and there's never going to taste the same. So it really doesn't behoove any of us to kind of guard things right. in that way. And it sounds like you're very collaborative too, um, taking inspiration from not only your staff, but um, would you say other chefs in your community as well? Yeah, we're inspired by by everyone. I mean, 
every meal out inspires us one way or the other. What are some uh, restaurants you've been to lately that were particularly inspiring? We just ate last night at Samila, which is in Greenpoint. Um, our friends Pam Young and Jose Ramirez have a new restaurant that's super vegetable forward. And I mean, what they're doing, uh, what they've done with the space and how they're uh, utilizing the ingredients that they have is, you know, mind blowing, really, really delicious food. We had, you know, Korean food yesterday, which is like super inspiring to us uh -huh. too. So a lot of it's just where we end up eating. We actually don't get to eat out that much, but when uh -huh. we do, um, you know, we try and just find flavors that we enjoy or something that sparks right. something. A lot of times things that come out of it are completely unrelated to the food that we <laughs> ate, but it sparks the conversation. So you're never like, oh, darn, I wish I came up with that first. Oh, <laughs> yeah, some others for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. there isn't really much new under the sun, so. Those bastards. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That happened a lot last night. <laughs> it was incredible. It's half, more than half the menu is vegan, I think. There was almost no protein, animal protein in the meal, and it was super satisfying, very satiating. It, they're they're really talented. Mm -hmm. They're gonna do well. Now, that sounds like a creative challenge for sure. Yep. Having to reek a lot of different flavors from, um, but that's something you do all the time at Bar Tartine. And to to those who may have not been to the restaurant or don't have this book yet because it just just did come out. Um, you well, know, it's not out yet. Oh, okay. Sorry, it's coming. <laughs> what day is it? November twenty fifth. November twenty fifth. They can pre order it, but it's not yet on shelves. Well, you'll see it on Amazon. You'll see it on places where you can order books otherwise. Um, and you can pre-order or get it in a couple weeks. Um, just in time for the holidays. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as I was saying, like, uh, you know, you guys have a lot of creative techniques in this book and in your restaurant on display. Um, I, I know you, sh you said in your introduction that it's really hard to describe the type of food you make when people ask like, what, what what kind of food? What kind of restaurant is this? What would be your answer? It's Japanese, Hungarian, and um, what else? <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> it's kind of whatever we feel like cooking, and it, we try and make it so that, you know, the dishes together make sense and not get too far out in one place or the other. But, you know, sometimes we're drawing inspiration from, you know, North Africa. Sometimes we're drawing, you know, inspiration from, you know, different parts of the Middle East. Sometimes we're drawn to flavors from, you know, Laos. So I mean, a lot of our base techniques are Japanese in origin, but our flavors from one day to the next are, you know, a myriad of things um, that somehow we think make sense altogether. But it, we try not to, you know, categorize it. One day we want to eat, you know, lentil dumplings. The next day we want to eat, like, spicy, you know, uh, you know, pickles. So it's just... It's just kind of whatever whatever we feel like cooking. Lentil dumplings, that sounds pretty good. I actually have a funny story about that, because I once held a dumpling party, and I invited people to make to bring their own fillings, and we'll put them together. Um, and somebody brought lentil soup, and they said, can we make soup dumplings with this? <laughs> it's like, not really. See, we're <laughs> going to steal that it. idea. That's how, that's how <laughs> these things happen. You're going to steal my friend's ill-fated idea, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you guys seem to re really redefine... Um, the restaurant um, in its menu because you know you say um, fusion or some type of blend of culinary influences from various different cuisines, but it doesn't necessarily hang its hat on any 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 combination on any duo of cuisines. It's it's a really an amalgam. And the last time I ate at Bar Tartine, I was served spetzla, 
like the most wonderful buttery homemade spatula covered with ikura. Yeah. And it was really good. Yep. <laughs> what was that all about? It's like Hungarian ikura damburi. Yep. Like the rice bowl. Oh, oh like a damburi with. But with spatula instead. Spatula. Oh, oh, and then. Okay, so does dambori usually have butter? Because, like, what was the sauce that would be on a dambori with ikura? Uh, usually no sauce. Usually uh-huh. just um, the rice might be seasoned a little bit or some uh, furikake on there, the uh-huh. rice seasoning. But, I mean, it's just a fun texture to have uh, <laughs> the pop of that roll on some big bowl of spatzolts. It's just fun. That was really fun. Um, and really delicious, too. Um, so congrats on just like all the interesting combinations that you have. Um, now, you mentioned a couple of countries, but I wanted to ask if there's any one country that would, that would be your greatest culinary influence, maybe for this book or maybe for your work that you're currently obsessed with right now. Is there any place that you're obsessed with the food from? I wouldn't say that uh, it's any one food. I think that more than a particular country, it's, it's um, the flavors that we grew up with that influence us. Um, the, the, the stuff that we like to eat when we were, when we were both growing up respectively, like Courtney was in Chicago and, um, I was in Michigan, but, um, the food that our parents cooked and, um, you know, the stuff that we grew up eating at, you know, local, local restaurants and delis. My dad Mm -hmm. living in New York too, actually, when I was a kid too, was a big part of it. Going to the ethnic restaurants out here, but, um. But that stuff influenced us more. So is that Polish, a little bit of Hungarian? I'm like seven things. Courtney's yeah. several. Yeah. Several. But um, Central Europe is, is big for both of us. Mm-hmm. And that's great that your parents still cooked and preserved those traditions at home. I mean, yeah, to a certain degree, you know, and some of it was grandparent food. But I think that, I mean, for us, you know, we have to cook something that we want to eat. And the food for us that is often the most successful is food that has some nostalgia because uh-huh. there's a base for it, there, there's a recollection, there's something um, emotional. I mean, not to be like, I don't mean to get all cerebral on food, but it, it is. Like when we make, we made a chopped liver the other day that was so satisfying just mm-hmm. because it was, But yeah, it's like my grandmother on a plate, which sounds weird, but. <laughs> and there's something about knowing like how it should be, like how, what, it, what is the ideals here and. What, what makes it a good chopped liver, then you can play around with from there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of the soups and salads in that book are very much so based on, like, things that Nick's dad cooked for him growing up, and there, there's history in that. There's, mm-hmm. there's a story. So I'm sure many chefs today would, would want to or would aspire to being as experimental um, as you have been in your kitchen, um, but what are some of the challenges that come with that? Like, is there ever, like these hard questions or tough decisions you have to make between making something that is going to be appealing, commercially successful and so forth and what you really want to do. Managing people's expectations is one of the biggest challenges, especially with what we do or with what a lot of chefs want to do right now, which is kind of get away from the traditional model of appetizer entree with (laughs) chicken, fish or meat um, and a vegetable on the side, like we really don't follow that model and a lot yeah. of a lot of cooks are just kind of over that so um managing that expectation is kind of challenging and and uh something we're always trying to figure out yeah it seems like a hard th- way to find the balance where people respond to it they're not too can you yep. know but 
as long as and the it's harder good. with European food. It's easier. I mean, we I did Japanese food for years. Courtney cooks it a lot too. Um, it's easier with um, foods from other places than than European food because mm. European food people just automatically associate with vegetable starch protein, and uh, mm. it's easier if you confuse them by throwing in some something ja- else, Japanese yeah. in the mix. Yeah. Well, it's also about culture and how people were raised. Like a lot of those, you know, if we talk about Japan or we talk about the Middle East or we talk about, you know, we could go on with the list of different cultures where food was served family style. People sat around a table and they ate many dishes at once. Um, and that's not traditionally how, you know, we were raised or how, you know, our food culture is. And so kind of shifting that um, is more challenging Mm-hmm. I think here than it might be in a different place mm-hmm. where that's just kind of the norm. Do you mean here, like as in New York, or San Francisco, no, America? In the US, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, <laughs> and kind of. We're lucky in the it's in, like in our me and respective my... cities. It's a little bit easier to get away with, but mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely see more menus shifting towards the sherry, sherry stuff, which, yeah. I, which is how I prefer to eat. Um, but like when you have two people, I, I, I imagine that there's. They might need some help or starter or like tips from the from the staff or something like that yep. to get into it. Yep. Um, how do you feel about <laughs> how do you feel about the gourmet hamburger on the menu? I know you don't have a hamburger on the menu, but um, I love a ha- I love a good hamburger. So I, whatever, as long as yeah. it's good meat and the bread's good and. Well, it's, you're starting to list out like some of the conventions, like starters, meat, entrees. Oh, you can share a burger real easy. You can get like twelve yeah. other things on the table too. I think there's a place for everything. There's a place for every kind of food, every kind of restaurant. I'm not going to say that, um, you know, the appetizer entree thing is bad necessarily. It's just that mm-hmm. I don't think people should expect that that should be every single meal. Like, there's a lot of nights when if we're off, we want to go out and get a salad and a roast chicken, and that's the perfect meal. You know, so. There's a place for that. There's a place for burgers. A lot of burgers. Mm-hmm. A lot of burgers. So how, uh, when did you feel like you could really break out of the mold? Because, um, you know, was there a certain point where you became much more experimental and broke out of the box a little bit more? And how did that evolve? I don't think it was... Um, intentional? Yeah, it wasn't. it wasn't intentional. It's just... I physically, personally can't do that. Like, I just, I'm allergic to thinking that way. I just, I don't know. In what way would that be? Just like the... Well, I was doing the Japanese stuff, and like, that was, you know, um, very far from the appetizer entree kind of way of service. It was Mm -hmm. a lot of small stuff that was shared. It was izakaya uh, stuff. This is when you were uh, working at an izakaya, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so before Bar 13. And, um, I mean, I... Personally, we, I think we both grew up working in those kind of restaurants, like continental food, oh, yeah. when we were in the Midwest, and then, mm-hmm. you know, traditional California or California food restaurants, also kind of similar. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I had the chance to write a menu, it was far from that. For me, a lot of it comes from the idea that, like, I personally don't like to sit down and eat like a huge meal of one thing. Like, I'm a grazer; I always have been. So, if, if we can create something that has that sort of grazing pick taste you know um feel to it uh-huh. it just it's very much you know representative of i mean how we both like to eat 
And what would you say to some like aspiring um, chefs or restaurateurs who maybe feel that they want to um, break some conventions and get outside of the mold, but find it really challenging from a expectation point of view? I think there's a there's enough of an audience now that that um, uh, don't demand that um, convention necessarily. Like, I mean, there are hundreds of restaurants in San Francisco now and in New York. I think that that are not following that model, and there's a and they're doing well. I mean, it's 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 not. I don't think it's super risky. It's paving anymore. the path, sort yep. of towards and and who knows where that'll lead to too which is always exciting what's next i also think it's important to not necessarily force it so like if if there's a convention you're you know trying to break just to break it i don't know if it's going to make as much sense as finding a you know something that may seem unconventional but doing it because it makes sense to you and not trying to to force something that's unconventional it's like if you want to cook a certain way cook that way Mm -hmm. that's fine Absolutely. Do what you do, do it well, make it delicious. It doesn't matter what format it is. If your format happens to be different than what we know as like a normal format, then great. But forcing that sort of thing, I think, um, is challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starting out saying I want to be unconventional might not be the best reason to do it. Well, I was just thinking it might be like difficult just economically getting um, a, a wider audience to be on board at first. So there might be some... Some, I don't know, but some y- tough times. You know, we have guests that come into Bar Tartine and they want to have their food and, you know, that's fine. We have we have people who sit down and they order their one I thing. See. Yeah. And that's how it is. That's what, right. how they want to eat. That's fine. We don't, you know, we, we try and have our servers um, communicate to them that this is, you know, a shared, we encourage sharing food. But if they don't want to, they don't have to. Absolutely. So again, Something it's just for like everyone. not pushing people beyond what they're comfortable with in whatever regard. Totally. Um, we're going to cut to just a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be back chatting more about Bar 13. You are listening to I Love the Way by Alan Wilkes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. All right, we're back chatting with Nick Bala and Courtney Burns of Bar Chartine on their new book um, coming out in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so we were just, you know, chatting about the restaurant a bit, but the food is so exciting. Um, one of the things you guys are really known for is making a lot of things from scratch in your restaurant. Um, it's a bit. It sounds like a bit of a, a culinary lab of sorts. So it sounds like a lot of fun. Things fermenting at all times. Things blackening like garlic <laughs> over a few weeks and I love that you shared all these techniques um, so let's talk about fermentation for a moment because this is like sort of something that is really I mean 10 20 years ago I, I don't think I would hear too many chefs or cooks bragging about what they're fermenting <laughs> what happened what do you think why did it why did it why is it now, yeah, become popular? Mm-hmm. I don't know why it became popular. <laughs> um, we both grew up eating a lot of um, naturally preserved foods. Um, I mean, the Central European connection with you know sauerkraut and um, kefir and Yogurts. a lot of these different products mm-hmm. were just like, yeah, a big part of our lives growing up, and. Um, I know I got interested um, when uh, Sándor, or Sándor Katz, Sándor <laughs> is a Hungarian name, and that's how I pronounce it. Um, <laughs> his first book came out, and that was a big inspiration to me. Wild I was already, Yeah. Mm-hmm. When that, um, my mom actually gave me that, and it was, um, I think I was already playing around with kimchi a bunch, and this, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, a, I think I was a cook or a sous chef at that point somewhere, but um, it's just always been a part of... I mean, both of our both of our lives, and I think mm-hmm. it it was already coming out, and then it's just amazing how it's exploded. Um, it's amazing. I hate you know to what? say trend, but well, it's interesting. You never feel like you're in front of a trend. Like all of a sudden, it happens, and you're inside of it, and you didn't mean to be inside of it. Like we never attempted to be inside of some sort of big fermentation trend. And some of our other friends have been doing it for way longer than we have. Like the guys over at Culture Pickle Shop have had their shop for, and they've been fermenting things for 20 years. And all of a sudden, like they're, they're the you know fermentation rock stars. <laughs> we kind of laugh about it sometimes because it's just like you're, you know, we're taking things that have been techniques that are from you know hundreds and hundreds, if not more, sure. years ago. We're just it's salt and water. Like it's it's not complicated, but it, it's, it's salt like this and water. It's whole, not well, it isn't. Yeah. It's like you know, it, it was a way to preserve things, and now we're lucky enough that you know we're able to to preserve things and you know make our seasons longer, and we we can capture aromas that we couldn't get otherwise. And so, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it's really good for you. Well, like it's, yeah, and it also makes a lot of sense because you're you're so uh, local and seasonal, and you're eating and and your food and your purchasing. So when you do have something great that you can put up in an interesting way. You're not going to see it, you know, for the rest of the year. You might as well. So it does make sense, you know, at your kitchen. Um, and also, I, I loved reading about how you're trying to recreate the Hungarian paprika using many different types, many trial and errors, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the locally found peppers. And you ultimately found a pepper from a farm that was 
the closest representation to that Hungarian paprika. And I, I just had to, I just have to ask, why not just import their Hungarian paprika? <laughs> Actually, the one we ended up settling on, I mean, we planted, I don't know how many plants over several years, trying to figure out what would grow the best. A few different farmers were growing them, but we ended up um, sorting through bags of paprika flakes from Hungary. Um, um, picking out seeds and seeing if we could get them to, to grow. Oh, um, and, that's great. Uh, they did. We spent a couple of winters just spending hours and hours and hours <laughs> sifting <laughs> seeds out of these bags. Um, it sounded like you were one step away then from like... Watching movies on the couch, picking oh. through paprika seeds. <laughs> or like I think my parents were visiting some... and they had to do it for a couple days too. Wow. And um, we ended up finding this great paprika varietal that... Um, it's it's bred specifically for powders, but um, mm. um, it ended up working out great. So a couple of different people are growing them for us, and we we dry them, we make pastes out of them, we do we use them for a lot of things. Yeah, and I it's really going in there deep, and I I just I just love that uh, you know that that insanity. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't call it the curiosity, I guess, of trying to find what makes this pepper taste this way. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really astounding what you guys have done um also batarga i didn't know that you guys were making it in the house this whole time this is like mind-blowing because i i don't know where i would get uh mullet row but apparently nick your uncle catches them in florida my uh, my uncle um uh, tony score um, (laughs) totally there's a gray mullet season every um it's usually usually starts november or december Sometimes it's December, January, but it's usually a couple months where they're catching them until they they meet their quota. And um, so every you know every winter basically we'll process as much as we can to try to make it through the whole year. And we dry it um, either completely dry for botarga, which we grate, or katsumi is what the the Japanese um, call um, less dried, and they can actually uh-huh. slice that and eat so it. It's, it's a delicacy. Like- Fish row, prosciutto, or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a chin meat. It's like a strong taste. They, I think is the mm. translation, but they eat it with uh, sake, um, and so we we pre- uh, preserve it for both. But it's really delicious. Uh, um, uh, row the gray mullet from from uh, from Florida and from the Gulf is, you know, comparable to the Italian Mugine stuff. Ooh, and I I read that um, most of that is imported to Asia to be preserved into the delicacy most of theirs, that you yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff down there gets bought and, and by, just, by, you know, thousands of pounds at a time going to uh, Korea, Japan, I think China too, to process for katasumi. Do you actually know any, um, like, American-based Batarga producers? Well, there's actually one in mm-hmm. the town where my uncle fishes that oh. is blown up. Uh, in the last couple of years, Cortez, they try to sell it to us. <laughs> Cortez oh. um, and I think they're doing a great job. Yeah, but um, that was kind of something we had talked about doing several years mm-hmm. back. That was never actually going to happen. But. No. Well, thanks for sharing the recipe or the technique of how to make batarga. It's one of probably many, many ways to do it. The way we do it in the in the cookbook, it, basically all the recipes and techniques in the cookbook are how we do them. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily how they're supposed mm-hmm. to be done. We are not experts on any of it. It's just well, kind of how... you've tinkered a lot. So sure, but it, of... there's so many things going on that we just do. We do them how we know how. It's right. always changing. Yeah. Like, there's certain techniques in there that work exactly like that. 
since then, have we found better ways on some of them? Sure. Does the old way still work? Definitely. Or whatever. We're always learning. It's always changing. We, we don't claim to be experts on any of those techniques. It's just what works for us. Mm-hmm. And like, hopefully for other people in their homes. Absolutely. Like this beautiful cover that shows um, the brining stuff in a feta? It's, yeah, cow's milk feta being brined in um, grapeseed oil and aromatics. And what are what are some of these aromatics? I see pink peppercorns, sure. Um, there's pink peppercorns, there's um, what's that? There's <laughs> dried lemon wheels. Hyssop. There's hyssop. Hyssop. Um, bay laurel, California yeah, bay laurel. It's fennel. all stuff that we dried and processed at the restaurant. Oh, is that a star anise? Except for that one. Oh, perhaps yes. yes, I think so. Perhaps. We just kind of throw stuff into things. There is not a preserved lemon. We just yeah. make you know from one day to the next. It's like something just gets thrown in there. These are not exact sciences. No, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, I mean a picture that was our tells first so batch much. of feta ever. Oh really? Uh huh. So you make a lot of like cultured uh, buttermilk and um, kefirs mm-hmm. in the restaurant too. That sounds like. A long process and a very, it's a very careful process too. I mean, no? I mean, the the culturing of dairy. I've killed yeah, stuff you can, like that. Yeah, you can definitely <laughs> kill it. Um, we have as well. But it's it's a quick process actually. Like the kefiring is, you know, a 48 hour process. Okay. Um, making the butter from there is a different, pro- you know, it's a longer process. But it's not, uh, it doesn't take all that long. Like mm-hmm. our, you know, a lot of our, Aged cheeses do take a while, but the process itself necessarily isn't isn't uh, super lengthy. What is the weirdest thing that you preserved, dried? Um, what? That's, there's a lot of weird things. We dried a lot of herring milt. <laughs> herring what? Milt. It's like the male male rosax. Oh, jeez. And it has. We were using it in some fish stews for aroma and texture, and that was interesting and weird. Yeah. Was there anything bad? Abalone. Mm-hmm. Um, bad? Oh, no, go on. Depends um, on what you weird. think is bad. I don't know. <laughs> in your minds, there. We mm-hmm. have things go um, off once in a while, but usually uh, we we've never, it. things have never rotted. Um, mm. You'll get harmless molds that have aromas sometimes on top of uh, pickles if you don't if you don't scrape it off in time mm-hmm. that can impart their aroma a little bit. They're not dangerous. But the, usually the only thing that we have to throw away is if we get a vegetable or a product that wasn't good to start with. Mm-hmm. So rot has never been an issue, but it's always been like, you know, we get some radishes that we didn't taste very well and we'll pickle, a, you know, ferment oh. a big bucket of them and then you eat them later and the insides are tough or um. they're, you know, the flavor wasn't good to start with. So they're bland. And so it's like, there's no to way to fix that. Some sort of not ideal vegetable. And it, it still wasn't good. We'll get a or. deal from the market with somebody's bulk <laughs> radish and we might not have tasted it well enough. And that's, you know, if you don't start with something good to begin with, then yeah. there's no way to make it good after it's done. Oh, so. That's a good tip. Thank you. Yep. I'll have to remember that in my experiments. It doesn't mean that it has to be beautiful. Like, that's something that we talk about is we have a lot of farmers that we work with that we get, like, B-grade vegetables from, and they're not necessarily something that would be put out. We prefer those. Yeah, we prefer them. They're great. They're cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, they're cheaper, and if they're still delicious, then we can use them. And then we're also taking out, you know, a surplus from our farmer that might he might not he or she may not have somewhere else that it can go. So it's this whole sort of, you know, reciprocal feast that's happening. It's good for us. It's good for them. It's still delicious. So there's really no way to lose in that situation. Excellent. 
Well, um, that's about all the time for us. But thank you so much for sharing a lot of these insights and tips and um, especially a lot more of those in the book. So check it out. Um, You have a launch party in New York in a couple days Um, or some shenanigans going on. Yeah, we're doing a small event at Bon Appetit, but we'll be back um, in the spring to do a couple of dinners, we think. Some public dinners, yeah. Oh, great, yeah. Cool, we'll definitely look out for that, and check out Bar 13 whenever you're in San Fran to talk, or to taste a lot of these great foods. So thanks so much, Nick and Courtney. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks, and thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening